Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted, we keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. All right, before I bring my guests on, I'd like to tell you a little bit about them both. Katrina is an experienced and respected leader with more than 20 years of experience working on national and regional level issues. She has worked in the nonprofit philanthropic and public sector. She has served in leadership roles at the Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services and Andrews Family Fund. Since rejoining United Way in 2018, she played an integral role in the allocation of the 2019 Community Impact Fund and currently serves as the, as the Chief Community Impact Officer. She is responsible for leading United Way's Child Wellbeing Impact Fund, co-leading the Greater Atlanta COVID Response and Recovery Fund, which has deployed more than 17 million to 320 nonprofits and the United for Racial Equity and Healing Fund. Prior to assuming her role at United Way, she worked for Literacy Inc. in the National Urban League. Katrina also served as an advisory member of the Children Defense Fund's Freedom School and as a board member for the Westside Atlanta Charter School and the Wellesley College alumni of African descent. She currently serves as a steering committee member for the Georgia Grantmakers Network for Racial Equity and Grantmakers for Southern Progress. Katrina is also the recipient of Rockwood Leadership Institute's Equity and Philanthropy Fellowship, the Association for Black Foundation Executives Connecting Leadership Fellowship, NEE Casey Foundation's Atlanta Results-Based Leadership Program, and Leadership America Class of 2018. After receiving a BA in English from Wellesley College, Katrina earned an MED from Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Kelly is a senior program officer with the Simmons Foundation. She has spent nearly 20 years in the nonprofit sector working primarily on issues related to youth and families. Kelly is a leader and speaker with a passion for the intersection of social justice and philanthropy. At the foundation, Kelly has leadership responsibilities for the implementation of grant-making strategies in homelessness, systems involved youth, and LGBTQ issues. It is her personal mission to ensure that women of color have strong personal and professional development opportunities throughout their career. As a result, you can find her talking about gender equity, leadership, and personal development in presentations on social media and in her writing. Kelly currently serves on the board of directors for Funders for LGBTQ Issues and Funders Together to End Homelessness. She's an alum of New York University's Leadership Houston and the Association of Black Foundation Executives Connecting Leaders Fellowship. Kelly is a social media aficionado and writer. She is passionate about women's personal and professional development. Kelly's ultimate joy is family time and laughing with friends. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah. 
Thank you for having us. I'm so excited. So I just shared with everyone your amazing bios. Um, and as I mentioned to folks, y'all are some of my dearest friends. But Kelly, can you tell us one thing people might not know about you and would find surprising? Mm, I'm told it's that I'm an introvert. <laughs> kind of. I, I like to stay in my house. So quarantine has not been difficult, except I can't get on an airplane. Exactly. So that we can hang out at somebody's conference, right? Um, exactly. So Katrina, what about you? What's one thing folks might not know and would find surprising? Um, that I always wanted to be a children's book author. And I have this dream of writing this children's book called Brown Sugar Babies. Um, I have all these old pictures of my grandmother, great grandmother. And so one day I'm going to do it, but it's something that I've been dreaming about for a long time. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. I can totally see that. I can totally see you writing that book. All right. We're going to hold you to it because, you know, not only are we friends, we're accountability partners. Um, so, you know, there's so much has happened this year, 2020, um, and I know we are all full, um, both professionally and personally. What has 2020 looked for you, look like for you all, both personally and professionally? Katrina, you want to start? Sure. I think professionally, it accelerated work that I came to United Way to do. Um, you know, it really allowed me to see all the efforts that I put in working on my team to really develop an equity focus on our work and all the work I had done before. And it just made it accelerated. You know, quite frankly, I wouldn't have imagined doing some of the things we were doing and it would have taken me longer. Like, I don't think I would have done it so quickly. Um, so that's been good, but that also means that it quadrupled my work. It meant that my days were longer and that that exhaustion was real. And personally, you know, it did allow me to spend more time with my kids. So as much as I complain about, you know, virtual learning, it actually has been a good experience for us. I have 11-year-old twins and just starting to see their preteen selves develop every day. It just, it's both recognition that time goes really fast and that this is time to spend with them but also I get to into that more because otherwise they would have been in school all day long and I wouldn't have seen them to the evening and run into sports practice. So personally, that hasn't been a bad thing. It has actually been a good thing. Nice, nice. There are some, some silver linings and it's so important to recognize them and hold on to them. Kelly, what about for you? How has 2020 looked for you personally and professionally? Professionally, um, it, it's been a little challenging. I mean, we are a small dollar funder, but leave a really large footprint around social justice funding in our community. And we honestly just wanted to have had a bigger budget. Like we wanted more resources to resource folks who've been on the front line and who knew their communities were going to be most impacted by COVID. Um, so I think our team really struggled with morale for about a month or so and just saying, man, like we would love to show up for folks deeper in this moment. But I do think that we have such meaningful relationships with our grant partners that we had a lot of support of each other to say, hey, I see you. And they were able to reciprocate like we see you. We see that 
you all are trying to advocate for us. Um, I think the opportunity in the moment was we really deepened our philanthropic advocacy. So really trying to make sure that our grant partners who are largely um, small grassroots groups, many doing policy and organizing work, um, that they got in front of funders who had resources in this moment and really did a lot of philanthropic advocacy, making sure folks knew folks' names, vouching for organizations. So that work was really, really meaningful for my, my staff. Um, I think personally, the highlight has been reconnecting with friends. Um, so my, my best friend just got her doctorate today. So to, yes, congratulations, Dr. Ross. Um, to just be in closer community, we've been having weekly Zoom calls and she gave us a run through of her, her dissertation presentation. We did like study halls. So we got on Zoom and we had to be quiet and actually do work. Um, was just a great way to be in community and not feel like, you know, we're alone in this moment, but finding other ways to connect. That's beautiful. And um, I know I have appreciated um, throughout the year being able to, to touch base with both of you, both as a lifeline in the work professionally, but also a lifeline personally. And I think that's the part that we're going to get to in this conversation is, you know, philanthropy, professionalized philanthropy is not just about the institutional relationships, but just like all things Black culture, it's about the personal relationships. And what you said, Kelly, is the work is not only the money you can grant directly, but it's also the relationships that you broker on behalf of folks. So we're going to put a pin in that for, for a second. Um, so our producer, Morgan, reminded us that each of us has been in this game for over 20 years. And when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, and am I really that old? But that means there's over 60 years of experience on yeah. this podcast today. Um, and so I know for me, um, you know, I have changed and evolved and grown over the years and always come back to a center, right? The why. Why? do I get up and do this work, you know, every day? So question for you, um, Katrina, has your why changed over the years? No, it's a good question. So it has, I think um, it's become more focused. So I'm super clear that my job at United Way is to ensure that the communities I care most about um, have access to the resources that they need. And I don't know that I would have said that. Like, I think I realized, I knew I was here to do good for others, but I don't know that I completely could have named that specifically and then connected that to the fact that I want my children to inherit a better Atlanta, right? And so, you know, for me, it has gotten more focused. It helps me to prioritize what things are in my bucket and what's not in my bucket. So if it's not about getting to that ultimate goal, then that's not on my list of things to do. And so as I've gotten older, it definitely has gotten more specific about what I'm not doing, right? what I'm going to prioritize and spend my time. Uh, and that for me, I think that I just have gotten clearer. Like I, I remember reading something about Chadwick Boseman and him being purposeful and purposeful and really leading a life of purpose um, that has gotten clearer for me as I've gotten older. Um, 
And as I've gotten children and watched, you know, how life has happened, and quite frankly, even in this moment around COVID, you got a lot of time to be very focused on what fits in the bucket and what doesn't. And so, you know, it, de- it has definitely gotten clearer. Thank God for clarity, right? Thank God. Kelly, what about you? The why? Is it the same um, when you first started this work? How, how has it evolved? or and, and what is it? What is your why? Yeah, um, I'm with Katrina. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was a do-gooder, right? So I, I knew I entered into the sector wanting to make a difference, right? Um, and have so much clarity in this moment about supporting Black women. Like, I'm laser focused on that um, because we do so much labor uh, and we get so little support. Mm-hmm. And I call in Black men in that. I call in white liberal leaders in that. I call in philanthropy and nonprofit sectors in that. Um, I watch Black women on the front lines of family and community and work and see how we are underinvested in on every level. Um, And so my why has really evolved into how can I show up in my 20 years, good Lord, of experience to support other Black women, right? Like how do I make sure they understand we don't support white dominant norms around competition, right? We are about sisterhood. And I think what I love about our friendship is there is no competition, right? There is there is space for all of us to shine in this work. And like, how do I model that and, and do the mentorship and do the coaching and the support of black women, whether they come into philanthropy or not? Um, and, and that we nurture and really step into this role as elders. <laughs> I know, scary. As is popping. <laughs> they are well earned, though. Um, and I so agree with you, um, you Kelly. I mean, we've been friends now, but six years? I always think about August was just born, my youngest son, right? So it's been six years for us. Um, and we were all in very different places. We were, um, not when say at the beginning of our careers, but definitely mid-level and have all, you know, matured into senior positions um, and are making influence nationally, not just in the communities that we work in. But that piece around sisterhood is so important because I know my growth is attributed to your growth, Kelly, is attributed to Katrina's growth, is contributed to Michelle and Jahan, shout outs, growth, right? That we have all, grown alongside one another and it's you know one another's breakthroughs that um continue to propel the other folks in our circle forward so i am so so deeply thankful for sisterhood but thinking about you know our why um and this moment around covid response this moment of racial reckoning in our country right there have just been so many layers of challenge to 2020. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I struggle at times to find meaning in all of it, but really try um, to be grounded in a faith that teaches me that all things happen for a reason. How are you all um, managing that professionally? I know, Katrina, you have headed some really important work at the Greater Atlanta United Way. Um, can you talk a little bit about the COVID response and recovery fund and how you're trying to embed racial equity in those efforts? 
No, it's a great question. So, you know, the journey started when I came back to United Way. I knew that part of my job was to really be able to accelerate what already was there, but this underlying focus on equity, right, and about place. Um, and we weren't at a place, you know, we were still on a journey. The staff was still figuring it out. What does that look like to us? Um, and then when COVID hit, it just exacerbated what the team already knew, but it was kind of in public display. Um, and the COVID fund to me was an opportunity to one work with the partner. So we worked with the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta um, and to really be able to demonstrate what that could look like. Now, did we do everything perfect? No, it was a rapid response fund. Um, the resources, you know, the community definitely came. We raised more than $20 million in five weeks. You know, we have more than $17 million out on the ground on nonprofits doing work everywhere from food insecurity to education to small businesses, et cetera. Um, and we knew, I knew going into it, we were going to have to put some things in place to allow to make sure we did reach um, the communities that needed the most and did have some sort of a racial equity lens in the practice, right? Mm -hmm. And so that meant one, you know, hiring other supports around us. That meant two, being able to help our advisory committee understand those communities that were disproportionately impacted. And three, that meant doing an open round. Right. So we did an open round of funding because most organizations did not have historical access to the United Way of the Community Foundation. That was intentional to allow for the fact that they could apply for funding in a way that if they didn't know our staff or didn't have those connections. Um, and so it was important for us to look at kind of that Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Our lens was not just Black led, we looked at Latino led organizations who really had a racial equity analysis to their work. Quite frankly, we funded a number of organizations where community organizing um, was at the core of what they do. Um, and that really, I think, was important because it's a good learning. While they were doing meeting direct services, it was a good learning for two philanthropic institutions to help share to the broader philanthropic community. Um, so, you know, for, for me, that was kind of the journey, right? But then that meant where did United Way sit in that? And so because we had all been on this journey around equity, we had not explicitly named race, but as we journeyed through this process, it was undeniable um, mm -hmm. how race played. And so our CEO did some op-ed pieces to help folks understand the importance to name race. Um, and we then launched the racial equity fund, which, you know, a year ago, we would not have been there. You know, it would have been not on our journey to go there. Um, the racial equity and fund really was a demonstration on that journey um, that we had to deepen our focus, um, be clearer about how we support organizations, and, and really provide a leadership model in philanthropy locally that stepped up you know, and put Black-led organizing as a really important um, element of that, you know, really put that kind of work at center stage. And so do I think we perfectly figured it out? No, I think, you know, there's so much in those moments that we look and listen and learn, but I think it has provided a huge learning opportunity, mm -hmm. um, not just for United Way, but for two major institutions in our local philanthropic area. It gives us a huge opportunity to be a voice and advocate for 
myself with philanthropic funders all across the state who are watching and paying attention. And so I think it has a huge opportunity to create a different conversation and shift uh, what we all know is what we want to see is a much more equitable philanthropic space um, that doesn't exist in that way right now. So, you know, I'm always saying this is messy work. You know, there's never step A, get to step B, and then you're going to get to step B. And progress in other sections. I think the need to feel like we're going to be that moment is wrong, but that we have to start. Well, I appreciate that, Katrina. We talk a lot about white supremacist institutional culture and perfectionism is definitely a piece of that. Um, And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to change systems and to change people and to change behavior. Um, And that doesn't happen overnight because a black woman is sitting in a specific seat. Um, And oftentimes we also know that when we obtain those seats, um, you know, it's very easy for folks to have an expectation that's beyond what we might be enabled to fulfill. I think it's, it's fair to have a lot of hope and expectation, but then you also have to understand how um, that person is situated and supported in that role to be able to execute on those expectations. So I I really want to underscore what you're saying about progress and not perfection and the way that you're looking at um, the progress that you all have made um, in this moment um, to push forward, to get money on the ground um, and to push the conversation on race and equity. Kelly, um, let's talk a little bit about you. I know not only have you stepped up in in COVID um, in your community, but also, you know, you had a huge role in a lot of the recovery efforts after Hurricane Harvey. So how have you been navigating COVID as a funder? Um, And like Katrina, what opportunities are you seeing emerge um, in the response efforts or your reflections period? Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like in COVID, unlike Harvey, we spent a lot more time listening to our grant partners. Um, We held a convening. We were able to re-grant some funding from a national funder who wanted to fund in the South. And we held a convening with folks that we had relationship with that we knew the communities were going to be leaning on for support in the middle of the pandemic and said, we want to hear kind of what is your experience around mutual aid? What is your experience around direct cash assistance models? And what are you learning? And most of that time was us listening to the lessons that they had already been learning in those early weeks when people were, when things were shutting down and people realized they weren't going to get a paycheck and watching an infrastructure that was developed because we had had so many natural disasters back to back to back, being activated during COVID was like so amazing, right? Mm -hmm. To see these folks who had to work together after Harvey, who had to work together after Imelda, who had to work together after all these floods that we've had, they knew each other, they had built trust with each other, Mm -hmm. they knew who was working in what neighborhood, they knew who served undocumented folks, good working with black folks. They knew all the nuance of that and were able to get to work, right? It didn't take a long time for our community leaders on the organizing side to say, here's what we need to do, because we we still working on Harvey, right? We're still 
helping people who are living in homes with mold and their 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 walls haven't been put back in. So they knew the families that were going to be in distress. And so talk, listening to them figure out, okay, this system worked for us. Uh, Cash App didn't work because of this. Um, my people feel like they want to check because they don't have bank. Like we went through all listening to all the scenarios. And so I think the opportunity in this moment is for funders who have never been flexible, have never been willing to change, to keep the changes that they that they made in the, in the middle of COVID and not go back to days of old, right? I mean, you're, you're hearing it in every community. Well, if they could ACH me money now, why couldn't they ACH me money before? Or if they didn't need a grant report, they don't need a grant report in the middle of COVID, why did they need a grant report any other time, right? right. And so they've watched us shift quickly when everything we've ever said was, we, we don't move that fast, mm. right? We, we make up this story, right? And I, the way I frame it is, we work in a profession that is fake, right? <laughs> made up the idea of philanthropy. They made up this concept, but the structure, right? They made up the structure of philanthropy. They made up these titles about program officer and this person and that person and made up these processes that make no sense to people doing the work. And then when the community is like, well, why do you do it that way? Well, we have to, right? We hide behind this myth. And, and, and now the community is the truth, which is we can do things differently if we choose to, right? And so how do we get held accountable as a sector to not go back when we emerge out of this current state of crisis into whatever our new normal is going to be? I think that is the opportunity for us. And I don't know that I have a lot of hope in philanthropy because I'm in that existential crisis of this system that we're a part of, but I hope that more funders than not will look at their practices and um, implement and institutionalize some of the changes for the long term. So so back to the first point you made, when you, when you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. <laughs> and trust the people on the ground who have the real-time relationships. We definitely learned that in New Orleans from post-Katrina, which is why I think, to your point, same in Houston, um, folks were able to regroup very quickly. It didn't take a whole lot. The relationships were in place, which we know are currency in the South. And the second part of it is, you know, when you know better, do better. And we've not only seen philanthropy do things they said they weren't able to do before, but we've also seen our government do things, right? So we talk about universal basic income like it is some, you know, astronomical concept, but we've seen that over the past couple of months when, you know, folks, you know, were able to get support through the unemployment system. So, so many ideas there to unpack further, but I think like you, Kelly, I'm, I'm probably a little bit of a pessimist these days about philanthropy, which is why we're having this series really to talk about the future of philanthropy. And not only was it made up and created, um, but also the very capital that's inside of the philanthropic institutions was extracted from the very communities that we're talking about. And so it's also really important to talk about that part of you know how white supremacy plays out in the institution of philanthropy. Um, so let's talk about the future of philanthropy. What what could it look like? You know, um, 
if if we if we allow ourselves can we to be optimistic for a moment right like what could it look like if we really reckon with both the 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 reality and the truth of where the capital comes from and then to your point some of these practices that we have actually seen um, happen over the past uh, couple of months. So Katrina, what do you think? What could the future of philanthropy look like? One um, that speaks to the why that you shared with us at the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, so I'm going to be on the hopeful side. <clears throat> and my hopeful side is partly because for me to continue doing what I do, I've got to have a North Star. And so, you know, the hopeful side for me is that I, I, I do believe in change, how much of it and how fast it happens, I think is the question. But so one, I think is this rapid response moment. Kelly just said it, right? The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, in any other environment, no two institutions would have put that much money on the the ground um, in five to six weeks, right? It would have been like, it's impossible. We don't have the capacity. We can't do it. You don't know organizations. So for me, that demonstrated that it's possible. That's number one, right? And that all the people who had all the reasons why that can't happen, all those obstacles got out of the way. You know, we had a very simple grant application. We did not have send us your 990s and make sure we get your audits. None of that was part of it. The reporting was simple as well. It was flexible general operating support. All of the funders who contributed to the fund were very clear that that's what we were doing. Um, so to me, that means that's possible. That means that we can actually do that again. Like, again, why do we go back to something different? Um, so that to me is one way in which it changes. And then the second thing is that to me, philanthropy also is so much about the people part of it, right? So the people inside institutions can do things differently. And so I believe that if you can shift people's hearts and minds in an organization, like the operational thing, then what comes out and what's different. Now, I recognize that we're also pushing against the system that created you know, 400 plus years, like there's all kinds of structural things that don't get unraveled just in a year or a grant cycle, quite frankly, in our generation. Um, but I do think that it starts with um, You know, our United Way, if without COVID, would not have gotten to a place for me to be in the seat I'm in to help push for a racial equity fund for my staff to be in a position to understand very deeply um, how to fund Black-led organizing. We wouldn't have been there. So, you know, for me, that's where there's like important moments and what the future of this looks like. But the staff needed support, right? They had been doing the same thing all these years. It didn't take me to do it all. It did take me to help um, support them in removing those barriers, getting the intel, doing the learning, and then making a difference. And so, um, you know, I, I still want to remain hopeful because I think once I become not hopeful, I'm not going to want to do this job anymore um, because it's taken long nights. And to Kelly's point, this is an exhausting work, right? Like, this, I don't do this because it's just I get a good paycheck. I, this is so much more personal to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a future there. Now, you know, my hope is that the demonstration for other 
foundations of Christmas today is that small and medium can start to do something differently instead of talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think folks who are primed for it, and I think in the next year or so, we'll see if they actually do it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to sound as if I'm, you know, completely pessimistic about the world, but the institution, you know, I think needs agitators as well as folks who are moving it on a path of sort of incremental change. And hopefully those two things at some point converge, pun intended, um, <laughs> for us to be able to, you know, to really see transformation, right? Like my thing is, do we have hope that this field can truly be transformed or is what is possible sort of these incremental programmatic um, changes in practice or can we really have a conversation again about where this capital comes from and how that capital is being reinvested in the communities that it was extracted you know and that's a different conversation than like can we fiddle with this grant process? Can we change our, you know, staff relationship? And I think both have to happen, right? Like there has to be the agitation and the questioning of the institution itself deeply, as well as those of us who are sitting inside of it trying to move, um, you know, things forward from, you know, the, the positions that we hold. And I really do believe that it, that, that change requires probably both of those efforts happening simultaneously. What are your, what's your thoughts, Kelly, about like the future of the field? Um, and then sort of where do you land on that continuum um, in terms of, you know, incremental change and blow up the system? <laughs> um, hashtag both. Um, you know, I was thinking as you were both speaking, like I've been a part of efforts to do incremental change that have been rooted and founded in the harm of our community. And it hasn't worked. And when I hear the frustration of young people, I understand why, right? I sit in meetings and on steering committees and people rationalize and justify why we can't go faster and why we can't criticize and why we can't expose really harmful things that are happening. And what is happening is our, our community is dying, right? And I don't feel the urgency in that, except from young people, right? I, and, and from our elders, I feel this pressure for us to slow down. So I feel stuck in between the yearning of two generations who need to have their own healing and reconciliation, but that is hard to do when it's expected to happen in the confines of life. And so I'm really curious and hopeful about what does healing look like for black folks that is outside of the system, that is not dependent upon those systems for us to come together and really have shared experience and understanding about what it is that we want. And, and recognizing the diversity of experience and perspective and how can we support each other in those things is my greatest hope. Um, do I think that that will happen within child welfare or juvenile justice or philanthropy? I don't think so. Um, I think folks have attachments to their money. I think there is, I've, I've watched it in other systems work, this power and control situation 
where I have the money and I'm gonna give it to you, but I'm still gonna control how you use it. Um, what my hope would be that we would see more funders who give up control of resources, mm-hmm. who say, here's 20 million for the community to, to decide how to give out. Like we need to get there um, and we need to get to better policy. And we get we need to get to meaningful conversations about what does a reparation movement look like that is meaningful to the world in which we live today. I think all of those things need to happen. Do I think that they will happen easily? No. Um, I think um, demand is what is going to make movement. Dr. King talked about demand, right? Other other Black scholars and intellectuals have talked about demand, right? People are not going to concede their power and their wealth and their privilege without demand. And in this moment, what the reason I believe we are seeing movement is because there is a demand, right? And the demand is different than it's been in my lifetime. And it's clear. It's and very it's clear. clear and unapologetic. We are not asking your permission, right? We are saying this is what we want. And so what I'm trying to do to stay hopeful in philanthropy is figure out how do I give more access for our grant partners to be in front of these folks, right? That I'm not picking and choosing the Black-led group that presents the best, right? Mm-hmm. That That is the whitest, that is the whateverest, that makes them acceptable um, and, and palatable to funders. Like, I want to give them the people who are going to tell them the truth and have the solution, right? Because they've been living with these material conditions forever, right? So we know the things we want to see. So what we need is access to the room to say, okay, you said you didn't know. You said these ideas here. This is what we've been thinking about. This is the vision that we have for our community. Now we need to get the people who are going to cut the check. Release the coin. Release the coin. (laughs) Hashtag release the coin release the coin yeah i i mean there's so many different thoughts there um and i agree with both of you i think it is a both it is a both but i also know as black women it is hard to hold that space where you have to hold the tension of both um so as we start wrapping up that's that's kind of what i want to talk about like what is it like being a black woman trying to hold both trying to hold the responsibility of getting resources, Katrina, to the communities you care about, and at the same time, wanting to blow the system up and not being um, used as a pawn in that very same system that causes harm in our communities. Because the truth is, whether it was extracted from our labor or if it, the capital was created as a result of privilege that we don't have, this money that we're talking about that sits in philanthropic trust really does belong to these communities, right? And to Kelly's point, these systems and processes and grant applications and can you write like this was created by someone. And the community's been knowing that is bullshit. And I think it's just really hard, right, to sit in those spaces as a Black woman holding both, knowing at the end of the day, we go back to our homes, our communities, and our families and have to be held for account um, for the time we spend in these ivory towers. 
Um, and oftentimes, you know, rightfully, the community, you know, holds us in critique. So as we just round this off, I, I really want to humanize this conversation and talk about like what it means to be a Black woman in philanthropy in this moment for both of you. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the three of us have talked about this. I know I've had a conversation with Kelly about just the longevity of it. I mean, one, I, one, I think that you can't do it forever. I, I think that there has to be an evolution because the the emotional drain that it takes on holding those two spaces just is draining. Um, you know, I, I think so much about the fact that I hold myself to such high regard that probably nobody, you know, I think people are holding a critique, but I take it so personally. And so, so much of it gets internalized um, because my intention is to shift these things to do better, but the recognition is it takes a toll on me, both mind, body, and spirit, right? Because my days are long, because I'm trying to navigate inside institutions and then listen externally and then connect it and translate and all these things that require all parts of it. I bring all of me so you get every piece of me show up in so you know I think in these days my sister circle is really important um, because I recognize that I need that support and so Closing myself in is not what I want. It's you know making sure I touch those networks, um, but it also means the pieces that we don't do well, which is the self care part, right? Like, how do I make space to have time for myself, to have time for my kids, um, and not get drawn back into the systems that we're talking about? And you know, very clearly, very recently, you know, there was a critique on the fund, which is why I will acknowledge it wasn't perfect. Things could be different, um, and the critique wasn't about me personally, but so much of it felt like me. Person because I knew how much I put into it, knowing that it still had these structural things that, you know, I could not have fixed, right? Because um, it wasn't just about me. Um, and so, you know, I, I think for me, it is about making sure that I keep those sister circles because I can't do this by myself. And then, you know, reminding myself that this might evolve. This might not be me forever. You know, it's okay. Like this might be, you know, I, it's the relay race and I do the first part of it and then hand off to someone who could do the rest. And that's actually okay. Absolutely okay. Absolutely okay. Because we all deserve rest. We all deserve rest. Um, And we're not going to be, we can't, like what they say, pour from an empty cup. Kelly, what are your thoughts? What does it mean to hold hold these spaces right now as a Black woman? Um, and how, you know, what are you relying on to kind of put you through? Yeah, I, I think I left Hurricane Harvey with a realization that, like with Katrina, my longevity is towards the end of this journey. Um, just consistently seeing your community not being seen in high regard in the data, not being seen high regard in the quote unquote quality of the work 
and to have that endless critique and have such little attention, acknowledgement, and action around the harm and the violence that's inflicted upon our community, right? Um, it gets to be too much, right? That you, in every meeting, I have to sit and think about, am I gonna be the one to bring up black people today? Am I gonna be the one to say LGBTQ out loud? Am I gonna be the one to talk about immigrant families in here? Because the other folks in this room are not gonna do that work, right? So just the exhaustion of even being in meetings has gotten to the point where I'm thinking about, okay, what's next, right? Um, because to what end, right? So yeah, you know, we got 20 more million, but somebody has a hundred million in a fund, right? And so you're doing this type of labor in support of community or pennies. And it's not sustainable. If philanthropy doesn't want to change, this is why you see Black folks lose the field at the rate that we do. And I think philanthropy has to be accountable for that. Um, my care of myself, I think particularly in the last few disasters, was not good. I was working too many hours. I wasn't getting enough sleep. I was drinking too much wine. I, I mean, just all the things, right? Like it's only so much you can hold in your body. And then I just had to like, be like this I can't keep doing, right? I can't watch the news. I can't go sit in all these committee meetings because it was just making me angry all the time. Um, yeah. And so a, a, a look inward to say like, what am I? What am I trying to build here? And who am I building it for? Right? Am I building it for my community or am I building it for philanthropy? And get some clarity around that. Um, and then just say, you know what? I need to check in with my girlfriend a little bit more often. Right? Mm -hmm. I need to check somebody. I need to, you know, maybe go back to therapy. Like all those things to really start prioritizing and making the time. Right? There's no. I have control over my schedule. I don't have to say yes to all of those meetings, right? If I'm not there, it's really, it's really anything going to be different, really, right? And so I really had to hold myself accountable for how am I taking care of me so that I can be in service of community, but that I can also be here for my grandchildren, right? Like those, that legacy doesn't exist if I'm not here, right? And so I think there's so many of us who are running ourselves into the ground and we see it in our health outcomes, right? Because we're giving it all for the work, we're giving it all for our family, we're giving it all, and there's nothing left, right? So I, sometimes I feel like we don't even end with the empty cup. We have no cup. We are literally drinking out of the palms of our hands. Mm -hmm. And who is giving their all for Black women, other Black women? <laughs> right. So as we wrap up, um, I just want to, I end every conversation with a couple of questions. It's been very interesting to hear different responses from different guests. So it's going to be rapid fire. So I'll ask a question and Katrina, you can answer first and then Kelly will follow up with her answer. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. All right. So it's three questions, rapid fire, and we'll uh, wrap our conversation like that. So the First question is, what is justice? Justice is when the work really is for us, just us. Hmm. 
Kelly, what is justice? Or it's bias. Mm. All right, the next question. Katrina, what is freedom? Freedom is those moments where I really don't have the constraints and I can be all and do all that I want to be and not be constrained by all the guard dogs. Brown sugar baby. I'm not going to forget it. <laughs> it's going to be when you write that book. All right, Kelly, what is freedom? Freedom is to live and be in choice. All right. Live and free, live and enjoy. The last question is What is the one thing you cannot live without? Katrina? My family. You know, I, I, it is what gives me joy. It was what excites me. I drive, I get energy from being around my family. Kelly, what is the one thing you cannot live without? Same. My family, both biological and chosen. They are my sanity and my peace. I feel y'all on that. That would definitely be my answer. Um, and y'all are my family. And I am so thankful to the universe for bringing us together. I am thankful, McCry, <laughs> for our, our family because you all are the ones who um, continue to inspire me to get up, give me energy when I feel tired um, and who remind me to take care of myself. And I hope that I do the same and show up the same for you. Thank y'all so much for sharing your time, your energy, your um, strategic thinking, your forward thinking. Um, for the work that you do on behalf of our communities every day. Thank you so much for who you are. I love you both. And thank love you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Love you. Hey, y'all. So it's time for Code Switch. Um, so it was really exciting and right on time to talk with Katrina and Kelly about the future of philanthropy, especially as the needs in our communities grow in the face of the pandemic, the recession, and racial uprisings. Kelly reminds us that the lessons we've learned from past natural disasters, whether they be Katrina, Harvey, Laura, or even now the COVID pandemic, only exacerbate the existing disparities and disasters in our community, including poverty and racism. We also have to recognize that um, and learn from these lessons, right? So we need to prepare in advance knowing that the most vulnerable communities are going to be disproportionately impacted in the face of a disaster. I also appreciate Katrina reminding us that the shift that we are experiencing is not only one that is happening at an individual level, but also a reckoning that's happening at a systems level and that we really need to have root cause analysis and to also make sure that our interventions are addressing those root causes. So if you have not, please make sure you check out the amazing work that she's doing at the Atlanta United Way. Last but not least, I think we've definitely had a robust conversation about how important it is to have your squad. 
as Black women in particular in these ivory towers, it's really important um, for us to have folks who have our back. We know that we're vulnerable to not only critique by um, other folks, but also critique from our community, rightfully so. Um, and so you need a network to support you, to hold you accountable, um, to give you cover, to give you respite, and just to provide a mirror um, that helps us stay in alignment with our personal and our collective missions. Last but not least, the current state of philanthropy is not sustainable. And philanthropy, like all other institutions, has to change. This is so evident in the number of folks who are leaving the fields, but also evident in the demands that our communities are making for the redistribution of wealth and power. If you have not, please check out my newest article in Nonprofit Quarterly, about who owns philanthropy in anti-racist lens. The link can be found at my IG. So that's at I am Takima on Instagram. It can be found on the Converge or the Nonprofit Quarterly website and also in the show notes for this episode. Hey Sis, I See You is a segment we started a few episodes into season one. It is near and dear to me because just as my grandmother would say, give me my flowers while I can still enjoy them. Each week, I get the chance to highlight a phenomenal woman of color in our community making bold moves and fighting for the good fight, and certainly not taking no for an answer. This week, I'd like to highlight none other than Ariel Wilson-Harris, founder and president of the Orchid Society. Born and raised in New Orleans, she's the daughter of Miss Elaine Radar Wilson and the late attorney Douglas P. Wilson. She's an honors graduate of St. Mary's Academy and later received her Bachelor's of Arts degree in Mass Communications from the University of New Orleans. Harris is a senior level communications professional whose career has spanned across industries from oil and gas to healthcare. She's now the Public Information Director for Metropolitan Services District, a local governing entity that provides mental illness, addiction, and disability services to the Tri-Parish area. Ariel is a proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated in African-American Women of Purpose and Power. She enjoys helping others, traveling and spending time with her husband, El Casimo Harris, daughter, Liori, bonus son, Grayson, and the newest bundle of Black Boy Joy to the Harris tribe. And a special thanks to our newest sponsor, Pistol and Stamen, who have helped to make this segment a little more colorful. The phenomenal ladies that we highlight for I See You Sis are now receiving a beautiful arrangement of fresh flowers as a special token of our appreciation delivered by Pistol and Stamen. All right. Thank you again to Katrina and Kelly for joining me for our new season. The future is truly female. And you can follow Kelly's work on Facebook at The Simmons FDN. So at The Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S-F-D-N on Instagram at The Simmons Foundation spelled out. You can also follow her personal Instagram at KKJSIG her Twitter at Kelly Tweets, and you can follow all of her work at www.iamkelly.com. And also you can follow Katrina's work at the United Way in Atlanta at um, www.unitedwayatlanta.org. Her email address is kmitchell at unitedwayatlanta.org. So next week, we're going to kick up a new conversation um, just with me where I'll be talking a lot more about the article from Nonprofit Quarterly um, where I'm talking about who really owns philanthropy and this notion of philanthropy as reparations. 
So again, you can always follow me on social at I am Takima, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Until then, I am Takima.